Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Let's open in prayer. Father, thanks for this night and pray that um, you'd open our hearts, Father, as we study. There's so much here. There's so much to learn. There's so much to to see as your Holy Spirit takes the message of Christianity and begins to spread it throughout the known world. It's hard to believe, Father, that everything started right back at this point, the beginning of the church. And Father, we're just thankful that we can be here and to encourage one another. Pray that you would teach us now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Most important thing next week is pizza night. All right. So come hungry. Um, And we'll order a pizza. Uh, pizza. Huh? Uh, We'll order up pizza. Yeah. Then Uncle Don has all the drinks in there, too. So we got the drinks covered. So let's open to the book of Acts, chapter 1. That's where we left off. And according to the syllabus, we're supposed to be starting chapters 3 and 4. <laughs> so uh, we'll see if we get to 3 and 4 tonight. Yeah. All right. Um, but don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get through We'll get through the material. Um, there's some parts of Acts that we'll sail through pretty quickly. Others get bogged down. This is one of those passages here, unfortunately, where there's a little bit of getting bogged down because there's so much important stuff going on that really will um, give you a foundation for the rest of the book of Acts. And of course, if you get this wrong, you're going to spend you know spend all your time wandering trying to figure out what Acts is all about. So, so that's why it's taking a little bit longer. To be honest, I could read through Acts verse by verse by verse, three, four times, whatever, on our own, and we got it. But the conversations that we've been having the last couple of weeks, the more in-depth conversations that we've been having, I think are very valuable. This is how you learn it. You know, you got MacArthur there that will give you the facts and, you know, or the other book there. Um, There's other things about what's going on that's good for us to discuss. So that's hopefully, you're right, that's what it's all about. Um, Last week we were talking about we finish in verse 5 talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and really making the case that biblically, as far as the New Testament is concerned, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the act whereby the Holy Spirit places us into the body of Christ. And it's a once-for-all act. It's done at the moment of salvation. It's not repeated. Um, we are placed into the body of Christ. Now, when I, when I toss the term body of Christ out, what do we mean by that? We toss out that term, uh, you're placed into the body of Christ. What, what does that mean? Yeah, there's two meanings of that in the New Testament. When we talk about church, body of Christ, there's, there's two, there's two um, entities usually in view. All right. And by the way, there's a lot of denominations that get created over this little ditty here. One is the universal body of Christ. All right. The church universal. All right. And most of the time, when Paul's talking about the church in the generic sense, he's talking about this universal church, the body of Christ. That's not the universal denomination as we know it, but the universal church is made up of all believers of all the ages. Um, Peter is part of the universal church. Paul was part of the universal church. 
I'm part of the universal church. And this is the called out assembly of believers that um, started in the day of Pentecost and will continue until the second coming, particularly the rapture. This is that group. All right. But then there's also the local church, the local body of Christ. All right. And how is the universal church manifested? Well, it's manifested in the local church. All right. The local church is very important. The universal church is very important. Both of these concepts are in view. There are some denominations, or not denominations, but there are some churches that emphasize the local church to the exclusion of the universal church. They almost deny the fact that there is this universal church, but that all the references that Paul makes to church in the New Testament are always to the local body of believers. All right, the local church, and there is no such thing as a universal church. All right. And then others want to talk about the universal church, and they're the ones that migrate from church to church to church. I knew a guy, and, you know, he, he said he was a Christian. I said, where are you going to church? Where do you go to church? I said, well, this weekend we're going over here, but next weekend we'll probably go over there, and this other weekend we got this one. Last weekend I was down here, and it's like, well, do you belong to a church? Well, no, not really, and I sort of float around to all of them. All right. We need to understand that there is a balance here. We're all part of the universal church. If you are a believer, it doesn't matter what denomination you're from or anything. You are part of the universal church, the universal body of Christ, in which Christ is the head and we're all members. And that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He places us into the universal body of Christ. We're identified with that entity. All right. But the local church is a very important concept. All right. The local church in, in the New Testament, why is it that we, why, why is the local church important, do you think? What makes a local church important? Right. Um, now, in context, that doesn't necessarily mean go to church. It does mean where to hang around other believers. Well, where do you hang around other believers? In my neighborhood, close by. Why, why, why should you belong to a church? This is the kind of conversation we get on. That's why we don't get to chapter 4, you know, 3 and 4. But why do you want to belong? First of all, let me ask a question. Is there an emphasis in the New Testament on the local church? Yes or no? Yes, yes there is. There definitely is. I mean, Paul wrote most of his letters to local churches. And what did Paul do? He went from town to town, and what did he establish? Local churches, all right? So the local church is a very important concept. It's a very important thing in the New Testament, all right? And what is the value? So let's sort of step back and look at it from 20,000 feet. What is the value, do you think, in God having a local church? What's, what, what do you get in a local church that you don't get on your own? What do you get? Accountability. You get accountability. That's one thing. All right. So, you know, let's just say why a local church. Why is it? Why is a local church? Why a local church is important? Let's say. All right. Why is it important? Okay. One, accountability. Right. In other words, um, if I'm out just sort of like a Rambo floating on my own, I have no one accountable 
to, right? I, I can sort of do what I want to do, you know. And if I'm a little tired this weekend, you know, well, I'll just stay home and watch TV or something. You know, I have nobody bother me on whether I'm in church or not. I can just sort of float and do my own thing. All right. Whereas if I'm in a local church, there's there's an accountability factor that comes in. You know, people depend on me. You know, um, I teach a Sunday school class. I can't just decide to not show up. You know, I probably could, but, you know, you you got people that are depending on you to be there. And also within the local church, this this is where church discipline comes into play, right? In fact, if you look in Matthew chapter 18, discipline, in Matthew 18, you've got this concept of church discipline where you are put out of the church. All right. It does here. Really? Yeah, but most churches don't do that because that's not user friendly. All right, that's not a very nice thing to do, you know. But 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 the the New Testament clearly teaches in you know church discipline this concept of church discipline, and there's an accountability to one another. Um, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. All right, where do you exercise your spiritual gift? In a local church. All right. And and by the way, just so you understand, all spiritual gifts. I can't I can't spell and talk at the same time. Spiritual gifts. All spiritual gifts are to be exercised in the context of a local church because a spiritual gift, by definition, is for your benefit, not mine. All spiritual gifts are for the benefit of someone else. They're never for the benefit of the of the receiver. They're for the benefit of the other person. Preaching. Does that benefit you? If you're a preacher and you you stand in front of the mirror and you preach a sermon, who get who gets edified? Cat, dog, maybe wife if she hears you, right? But if you stand up in front of a congregation to deliver a sermon, who's edified? Hopefully, everybody. everybody. A spiritual gift is given for me to minister to the body of Christ. Every spiritual gift is given for. The other, not for myself. Teaching, does it help me? Does it do me any good to teach myself in a mirror? No. My gift of, my gift of teaching is exercised in the context of a local church, in the context of a classroom, in the context of some accountability. I'm just not off doing my own thing. You had one that you said. Well, the Bible says that uh, the five full gifts are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Yes. So you're equipped for the work of the ministry. What's a pastor teacher do? He equips the saints mm -hmm. so that you can do the work of the ministry. And when you look at the spiritual enablements, as listed in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter chapter 2, all of them are, they, they fall into a, a speaking and a serving or a sign gift and are given to edify other people. That's, that's their purpose. And if somebody says, well, I'm exercising my spiritual gift, and yet they're drawing all attention to themselves, that's not a spiritual gift. That's not a spiritual gift. The spiritual gift is for the edification of the body of Christ, not for the one who has it. All right? But you had one that, that you mentioned a while back. Equipping. That's it. Um, a church is a place where you go to get equipped. Right? Where you go listen to a sermon or you're encouraged in a class or 
you're admonished. It's a place of worship. Here's another one. Where do you where do you practice the ordinances? Right? Can you think of doing communion by yourself at home with just you and the wife? I mean, you could technically, but how about baptism? You know, the, the ordinance of baptism. You, you, you do ordinances in a, in a local church. All right. Um, here's another one. Giving, right? I'm to give to my local church. Why am I to give to my local church? To support the work of the ministry. How much should I give? Whatever you want. No. I'm writing a paper on that. Um, tithing was a tax. Tithing is an Old Testament tax. But in the New Testament and in the Old, you gave the Lord whatever you wanted. Whatever God has prospered you, you're to give. And you're to give it for the work of the ministry so that you know, we need to keep the lights on in this place and the floor is clean and the bathroom's cleaned and the pastoral staff paid and Don paid so that he can, you know, take care of the crossroads, things like that. I mean, there, there's, a, there's support, right? And then we're to give to missions, right? Because the church gives to missions. All right. Um, another one here is fellowship, right? Where do you fellowship? You fellowship in the local church. We could go on and on. I'm not going to go much farther than this, but the point is the local church is important. And some people's, and by the way, one of the components of a local church here, and we're going to talk about that, and I think it's important, okay, is membership, right? Membership. What does it mean to be a member? You know, there are some people, there, there are those that say, look, you know, church membership is overrated. You don't really need to be a member. What do you think about that? You think you ought to be a member of a church? Right. You need to be a member because what does that do? It shows the unity. You buy into the vision. You're buying into the vision. It shows the unity. And how can I discipline someone who's not a member of the church? You're not under authority. So you yeah. Authority. You do your own thing. You know. You need. I really believe this. I believe every Christian ought to be a member of a church. You ought to be a member. You should not just be a floater. All right? Because a member means that, that you're buying into the vision. You're buying into the mission of the church. There also, it, uh, there's also a two-way accountability. If I'm a member of the church, I'm going to go there and not somewhere else. Right? If I'm a member of Elyria Country Club, which I wish I was, but if I was a member of that, where would I play golf? At Cow Path? No, I go to the country club. That's where I'd I'd play. You know, money. I don't make I don't make the kind of money you make up at Ford. Um, but but the point is the point is membership brings a level of accountability to a local church to a local assembly. All right, and and, and we are accountable to one another. We pray for one another. We, ex we experience life together. We weep with those that weep. We laugh with those that laugh. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's great value and great, I mean, I think it's very important that we have this concept of membership. Because if not, you're just a floater. You don't really belong to anything. 
All right. And and by the way, what's the problem in, in the United States today? Well, the problem is that we bought into this pluralistic mindset of do your own thing. So the idea of committing to something is it's it scares the daylights out of people. No one wants to commit to anything. You know, look at marriage. Nobody wants to commit. We'll just live together and works out. That's fine. If not, well, that's the way it is. But the idea of actually joining or 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 or, or promising a membership or, or something, we don't want to do that. We want to just sort of do our own thing. Because then that enables us to live our own way. Membership is important. But the universal body of Christ is important too. We're all members of that. And that's why all of us in here, we have different churches in here, but we all share a common life. The universal, we're all members of the universal body of Christ. How do you get to be a member of the universal body of Christ? You're saved. You're born again. All right. How should you get to be a member of the local church? Right. But what should they be careful not to set up? Hmm? It's important to have doctrine, right? Well, their membership is different for each church. Yeah. But the point here, here's what I'm trying to get at. We need to be careful. I think there are certain um, entry requirements to be a member of the church. All right. But we need to be careful not to make those entry requirements greater than the universal church necessarily. You know, well, if you want, you know, there are some churches say, okay, if you want to be a member of this church, you got to be saved, you got to be baptized by our staff, and um, you got to commit to giving 10% of your income. What's the problem with that? Yeah, it's, it's you know, now, now look, if you want to be a member of that church, go ahead and do it and that. But, you know, I, I don't, I think we got to be careful here. We got to, we got to walk a, a balance. There's a balance. All right. If somebody wants to join a church, you need to make, be sure that they're saved. And I do think baptism is an important issue. All right. But to start adding all kinds of stuff on top of that so that, you know, it, it, it's harder to become a member of this church than it is to get into heaven. You got to think about that. All right. Yeah. You got to think. And, and every church is different. Admittedly, every church is different. Okay. But now, what we have here, the Spirit, so you never got it, you didn't even get out of verse 5 yet. Um, well, who does the universal church include? Anybody who's born again. Yeah. So, so there are probably one or two individuals in every denomination. Yeah, there's a couple of Catholics in there. Um, I'm joking. Uh, yeah, there, there's... It, to be a member of the universal body of Christ, it's salvation, it's faith. It is being born again. That's that's it. That's the only requirement to be part of the universal body of Christ. If you're not part of the universal body of Christ, you're not saved in, in this age. You're not you're not redeemed because it happens at the moment of salvation, where you're placed into the body of Christ. Now, at this time, why was and we're going to talk about this when we get to Acts 2, why was there a separate event of spirit baptism with the, with the falling of the Spirit? Well, it's because that universal church had not yet existed. It's got to be inaugurated somehow, all right? 
So you have that initial event. Thereafter, as each person is born again, as you believe, you're, you're automatically part of the universal church. Now, there are some exceptions in Acts as Christ, not as Christ, as God is trying to get across the notion that in the church there's neither Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free nor Samaritan or whatever. We're all one body. There's some, you know, there's, there's, there are places where that, you know, immediate baptism is not evident. All right. And we're going to get to those. So we'll, we'll get there. But when you go over to 1 Corinthians and you go read the rest of the New Testament, the, the baptism of the Spirit is something that happens at the moment of salvation, where you're placed into the body of Christ, you're identified with the universal church. Thereafter, what should you identify with? Find yourself a local church that you can be part of and be accountable to, because we all need that. As humans, we need that accountability, that mutual accountability. All right? Does that make any sense? Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, verse 6, we're on verse 6 now. Lord, will you at time this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Okay, now we got another discussion here. What are they asking him? When you're going to take over. Yeah, when you're going to take where's the kingdom? Mm -hmm. So what were they looking for? What 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 were now first of all, what nationality were the ones asking him? Jews. And what were they looking for? They were looking for an earthly kingdom. And why were they doing that? And because all their life they've been taught that and because God promised them a kingdom. Now again, that's a very important, that, that's really, really important to understand. Remember when we, on week one when we were talking about the dispensational versus the covenantal view? Of, of scripture, the covenantalist will say the future Israel is bagged. It's not going to happen because they rejected their Messiah. God, God abrogated his promises. There is no future literal kingdom. We are the new Israel. We are the kingdom. And in fact, they would even say that even at this point right now, we are living in the kingdom. All right. That's, that's their belief. However, if you take the Bible in a grammatical, literal, historical hermeneutic where there is a future for Israel, which I believe is the probably the clearest and best way to interpret it, then there is a future for Israel. And one of the proofs that there's a future is what did Christ tell them here? How what was his response? So, hinted in that answer is what? It's going to happen, but I can't tell you. Yeah. If it wasn't going to happen, you know, we'd, we'd have solved the whole dispensational covenantal debate had Christ just told us right here that, oh, the, the, the kingdom's gone. I mean, you guys rejected me, and that's the end of it, you know? I mean, that would have solved it. Think of all the trees that would have been saved and all the denominations that wouldn't exist if he had just told us, and he didn't. Which would tell me that, yeah, there is a future for Israel. Because the clearest reading of Scripture gives you that. When you go home and just read the Minor Prophets, I'm going to take you out of the land, and the latter days, I'm going to bring you back to the land. Right, how would you interpret that? The literal way. It's not, I'm going to take you out of the land, but someday I'm going to bring a different you back into a spiritual land. That doesn't make any sense. 
What sense does that make? It's it's literal. And and they're asking him because because in their mind, what was the next event when the Messiah came? What was the event? In the Jewish mind, what was the event? Kingdom. This whole notion of church age and Gentiles and forget it. They didn't have no concept of that. And if you read the Old Testament, quite honestly, does the Old Testament clearly state that there's going to be this future church age? It's not there. That's why it's called a mystery. What is a mystery? Something that's hidden and is now revealed. The church was never mentioned in the Old Testament except in vague references. It's, it's not clearly taught there. There's no, there's no indication in the Old Testament that there's going to be this extended period of time between the advents. In fact, in the Old Testament, how many advents did they see? One. And that's what freaked them out. Remember when Christ in Nazareth read the scroll and he, he's reading through Isaiah 65 and he stops right in the middle of the verse and rolls it up and said, today it's fulfilled in your ears. And he said, well, wait a minute, what about the restoration of all things? What? That's not the first advent. That's part of the second advent. But they didn't know that. They didn't have that concept. Christ is... Christ is saying, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Yes, it is coming, but you know what? It's not for you to know when. Now, by the way, that solves the whole dating the rapture business, doesn't it? Or shouldn't it? I get so tired. You know, every time some screwy event comes on, you know, you got 25 or 30 Christians writing books on, okay, we figured it out. It's the, it's the Bible code. We got the date. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Back in 87, there's a book, uh, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. And you know what? The Bible says, when, when can Christ come back? Anytime. So you better be ready, because you don't know when. And I keep thinking that the way you find the date is get everybody together, figure out what date he couldn't come back, and that's probably it. Get all the experts to rule out every date, but the one they say can't, that, that's the impossible date, and that's when, because he just, we don't know. And Christ is telling the disciples, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And remember earlier on, Christ said, you can't, you, you do not know the day or the hour, and I had some, I picked up some book by some guy said, well, we can't know the day or the hour, but we can get the month and the year right. <laughs> you know, um, come on, folks. It's a euphemism. If you don't know the day or the hour, you don't know when. That's the whole point. You don't know when. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not for you to know that. So he doesn't even answer them. Other than it's not for you to know. But well, why people always say, as soon as, as soon as something happens, they always think that it's the end time. Not not theologians or anything. It's just everyday people. First time they see something happen, we know the time is almost here. And I always say we don't know when. We don't know when. Oh yeah, I remember that. You know, Christians selling their homes and you know, people made a killing on that. You know, you just write a book. I asked John. You know who John Walbert is? John Walbert. I've seen the name. 
Yeah, he was a president of Dallas Theological Seminary for many years. He wrote more books on prophecy than most people have read. Um, wonderful man of God, loved the Lord. And uh, I, I was able to take a class with him. This was back when this whole 88 Reasons business was coming. Somebody asked him, I said, well, you know, you, you know, maybe you should write a book in response to that. He said, nah, I'll, I'll get to it next year. This is 1988. You know, I'll get to it next year. You know, um, we don't know when. Has to be prepared. Though. That's the point. The point is, and, and that's the point of the New Testament. Be prepared for you know not when. God doesn't want us to know. I mean, I mean, think of think of what that would ruin. What if what if God God showed up right now? He appeared right here. And he gave each of us a slip of paper with the date of our death on it. How would that change us? I'd be getting ready in a hurry. How would that change us? Give us a date. I'll give you the date. It's this date. It's this time. It's going to be the opposite to you. You're free to do whatever you want because you know that you're. Yeah, what you know, some of us in here we get we get this thing, you know, and it's during pizza next Tuesday or next Thursday, you know. What would you do between now and then? I think the point that the Bible would have us do is, if if you happen to know the date or the time, you really wouldn't change anything, because the way you're living is such that. It wouldn't change. Does that make any? That that's the. Yeah, that's out of context. But but the whole point is, if if I knew the day or the time of my death, I should want to live such that I, I really wouldn't change anything now, because I'm doing the right thing now. Or if I knew the time of Christ came back, it wouldn't change anything. If I knew he was coming back, if I had the date and I knew exact time and place, yeah, I wouldn't do anything different. I would still do what I'm doing now. And, and that's how he wants us to live, in the expectation of his coming so that we're always ready. And yeah, you know, when something goes on over in the world, you think, well, it's not long yet. You know, it could take another hundred years. I don't know. I have no idea. It's not for me to know time of the seasons. That's the Father's business. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is the key verse in Acts. And you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And you see the expanding circles. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. And who is the one that empowers them to do what they're doing? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to live our spiritual life. It's not up to me to live it all on my own. It's the Holy Spirit that energizes that. Now, do I have to cooperate? Yes. For every verse in the Bible that says God does this in you, there's another verse that says do this. So both both work together. But if the, if the Holy Spirit were to stop right now, 
we could do nothing. Which makes you ask the question, you know, what if the Holy Spirit didn't show up in your church next Sunday? Would you know it? Hopefully. Hopefully you would, but would most church know that the Holy Spirit didn't show up? Not my old church. They wouldn't even know it. I don't think it showed up anyway. Probably didn't show up, yeah. <laughs> the Spirit is the one who empowers. And why is Christ telling them to stay in Jerusalem? Because they have a big task ahead of them, and for them to do that, what do they need? The power to do it. Because if not, what's going to happen? They're going to be Peter all over again, right? I all won't deny you. Yeah, right. You denied him three times. And, and you know what? I, I, talking about myself personally, I can't talk about you all. But talking about myself personally, that's probably that's probably one of the things that I have difficulty with. Because it's too easy to do things in your own power, isn't it? There comes a point where you know you can't handle this without the Holy Spirit. You look puzzled. No. I know what you're saying. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I got enough biblical knowledge in me that I could bamboozle you for two hours. And you wouldn't know it. You don't think so? Yep. I could bamboozle you. Why? You don't think I'd have this up going to read it from the script? No. What I'm saying is, I could I could teach in my own power, and you probably wouldn't know the difference. Oh, that you weren't teaching you under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And you know what? People can preach like that, too. And you can minister like that, too. You can minister in your own power. And, you know, for a while it looks like it's okay, right? It's going to catch up on you. It's going to catch up with you. But, you know, the carnal part of us, you know, sometimes we don't, you know, we don't realize just how dependent we are on the Holy Spirit. And sometimes God uses us in spite of us, doesn't he? Yeah. But the thing, you know, I, I, I have to catch myself on and sometimes is, you know, yeah, you, you got a glib tongue and you got a lot of doubt and you got a lot of knowledge, but you know what? If the spirit isn't in it, what good is it? What good is it? What good is it? I mean, you know, in my 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 own little Sunday school class, you know, I remember some sometimes I went in there, you know, I I was teaching, I thought, man, you know, this is the greatest, you know, the, boy, this is really, and I have people falling asleep, you know, Bart's over there snoring in the corner, you know. <laughs> then I go in there and 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 I have an off day and I feel horrid, you know, and I just, you know, I said this isn't getting through, nobody's getting it, you know, they look like they're falling, and they come up afterwards and say, boy, you know, that was the greatest lesson you've done in the last year, you know, oh. Wow. I'm thinking they're from a different plane of existence, you know, and and the difference is it's the Holy Spirit. And, you know, one of the things that I think we need to challenge ourselves on is um, when we exercise our gift, spiritual gift, whatever that is, are we depending on the Holy Spirit? Or are we just doing it? Because if we're just doing it, 
What's the value? See, Peter thought he could just do it, right? I won't deny you. And yet he did. And, and depending on a spirit is just a, a conscious understanding that, you know, if you don't empower me, it ain't going to happen. It's not going to work. And we have to catch ourselves sometimes. And he's saying here, I want you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Because that's the only way you're going to pull this thing off. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel. Who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up in heaven? The same Jesus was taken up from you will so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. You know, one of the heresies in Christianity is this whole, Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. He only rose in the minds of the disciples. Well, look at the language here. What did they see go up? A person. He was visible. Earlier, he had eaten breakfast with them, right? Ghosts don't do that. And they see him go up. And what did the angels, the two angels, what did they say? The one that went up is going to come back. So that's the second thing. Don't let anybody bamboozle you saying, well, Jesus comes back when he comes back in the minds of his believers. That's the kind of drivel you get at the liberal churches. He's not going to physically return. He just returns in the minds of those who believe in him. That's, that's what it means he comes again. He comes again in your heart. Well, they're out there. Acts says, you know, the same way he went up, he's coming back. Physically. And Zechariah says he comes back to the same spot from which he went up. All right. He's going to come back. And just like he went up, he's coming back. And, and, and in fact, the angels are saying, don't sit there and look around, guys. Go where he told you to go and wait for the power to come upon you. And it says they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. What mount did Christ come up, go ascend from? Olivet. When's he coming back? Olives, Mount of Olives. Which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. How far was a Sabbath day's journey? Yeah, it wasn't very far. It was as far as the legalistic sourpusses in Israel said you could actually walk without working. Now, did God ever come up? Is there a, the idea of a Sabbath day journey? Is that in the Old Testament? No. That's the kind of stuff that the Pharisees made up. Well, how far can you walk without technically working? And they said, it's, it's so far from the gate of your house. So the most pious Jews had the gate of their house, the farthest from the house they could, so they could technically still, you know, you know there's always a way around the law, isn't there? You know, that's why we have lawyers, to try and plug all the holes. And even then they don't work, right? There's always a loophole. Ask part about the tax loopholes. There's, no matter how tight they try to make it, somebody, somebody who's smarter comes up with an idea to weasel around it. I said, and when they entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. 
There's an upper room. And uh, you have the disciples, Peter, John, James, John, and Andrew. Who are those four? They're the inner circle. And of the inner circle, who's the inner inner circle? John. Peter, James, and John. And who's the, who's the leader of the first group? Peter. Peter, he's the biggest mouth. It's interesting, when you look at the disciples, there, there are, four, I think, about four lists of them in the New Testament. Um, and when it lists their names, the first four are always listed together. The second four are always listed together. The third four are always listed together. All right? So there, even within the disciples, there were some that were closer to Christ than others. And these are the four that were closest. And then you had Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. These are the, the second group of four. Then you had James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. And there's another one, Judas Iscariot. Of course, what happened to him? Yeah, he, 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 yeah, he withdrew his membership. Um, of course, he, he sold Christ and went out and hanged himself. And these all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. Who's the women? Mary. Well, there's Mary in there, but who else? Well, probably Mary Magdalene. There could have been Salome. Salome was Mary's sister, the mother of James and John. Um, there's a lot of other women that, that ministered with the disciples and in, in that we don't know about. We don't even know who they are, but there's a bunch of them there. Um, some of the disciples could have even been married. We know that Peter was married, right? So probably his wife was there. All right. And you know, I say, well, it's pretty demeaning to say the women. Well, you got to understand there's no Greek word for wife. All right. There's no, there's no Greek word that, that, that distinguishes your wife from a woman. All right. Huh? There's demeaning in their language. Well, it's just their language. It was the culture of that day. You know, it was just, it was the culture. All right. They didn't have a separate term for wife. Oh, that's right. The, 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 the wife of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. Um, and with his brothers, who those? Well, there'd be James and Jude. And there were some other ones, right? We don't know their, all their names, but there are some other ones. All right. And what were they doing in the upper room? What were they doing while they're waiting? Praying, reading, maybe, waiting. What are they praying for? Find out what, uh, what he meant by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And this is interesting here. Just because God says something's going to happen doesn't mean you don't have to pray about it, right? Will your prayers make Christ come back one day sooner than he's supposed to? Will it make him come back one day later? So why do you pray that he should come? Right? He's going to come anyways. Why pray about it? That's right. Why pray about it? God's going to do what he's going to do whether you, whether you want him to do or not. Why pray? So basically you say there's no such thing as answered prayer. I'm being a devil's advocate. Why do you pray? So am I. Why do you pray? 
If God's going to do what God's going to do, why do you pray about it? Because he wants us to pray for whose benefit? His or ours? It's our benefit. It's for our benefit. Now, don't ask me how that works out any more than how the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility works out. It's just that God wants me to pray, and, and the major benefit of me praying for something is that it prepares me. There are a lot of scriptures, reference scriptures, that says God will do what he wants to do when he gets ready to do it. And my prayer isn't going to make him go any faster or slower. I mean, associated with but the assignment. But I'm part of the process. That's sort of cool. Mm. And you don't figure that out. Don't try to sort it out. Well, what about the guy knocking on his neighbor's door wanting the bread? Yeah. The neighbor wasn't going to give it to him until he bugged him so much he finally... So, so God's up there and he's just... You know, I want a, I want a plasma TV. I want a plasma. And if you just keep at bugging him, he'll give it to you. I can't explain that. Yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to, we'll have to talk. We'll have to talk about prayer. What, 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 what Christ is trying to do is he's trying to draw a distinction there. You know, if your importunity will make your neighbor get out of bed to give you some bread, and he really doesn't want to, what's God going to do? Who wants to? It's a contrast is what it is. It's not like, well, I can just nag God, and if I just keep nagging him, nagging him, nagging him, I'll finally give in. That's not what it's trying to get at. It's trying to get at, we need to be persistent in our prayer when we know it's according to God's will. We should always pray according to God's will. What does God want? What God wants is what I want. That's the whole purpose of prayer. The whole purpose of prayer is to line my wants up with his. Not to line his wants up with mine. That's the difference, right? You probably want me to be rich. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have my Hummer yet. No Hummer? I'm making a big one. Oh. Yeah. So, side on that, I'll give you an article. I gave you some time management. I was being a widow. Prosperity preaching. They mentioned several of them, including Esteem and many others. And that's the whole thing, you know. What does he really want? I mean, they, they, they put the emphasis, the problem is they put the emphasis on the fact that, you know, this is, you know, no matter who you are, that you can be rich, you know. It may not necessarily be that. I do find that interesting. We need to pray. When we pray, we need to ask God to give us the desires that he wants us to have. That's praying according to God's will. What does God want? That's what I want. So if God is going to heal someone at 6 o'clock on a certain day at a certain time, and you're busy praying for it or whatever, again, I'll ask you, is there really anything called answered prayer? Yes. If no matter... What you're praying for, God's already going to know what He's going to do. It's the same We're paradox. It's the same paradox. It's the same paradox that exists in, in salvation. You know, it's it's it's, it's you got to look at it from two different levels. From the divine level, God's going to work His purpose out regardless of what you do or don't do. You're not going to stand in the way of God's kingdom advancing one iota. All right? That's God's perspective. 
I don't know what that is. I know my perspective. God told me, told me that I need to pray. Why do I pray? Because through prayer and through the word, I align my will with his will. How that all works out in the divine scheme of things, I don't know. Just like the example of Elijah and James. Yeah. That it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain, right? And yet there's another passage that says God told him it's not going to rain for three and a half years. Mm -hmm. So you got one passage that from God's perspective, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. From the human perspective, Elijah prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years. I don't know how that goes together. So I don't 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 spend your time trying to sort it out. Rather, pray. And, and, that, and that old prayer is to align us, our thinking, my heart, my desires, with God. That, that's what it's all about. It's, it's a relationship. Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? I don't want to make you look bad. If I, if I love the Lord, I'm not going to make him look bad. I'm not going to try to drag his name through the mud. I'm going to want to exalt it. I want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> which it isn't right now. But I want that, right? I want his will to be done in my own life. I acknowledge him as the source of my daily sustenance, whatever that is. And I'm thankful for what he's granted me. And I ask him to deliver me from the evil one, from Satan. Don't let me fall into sin. Don't let me go down that path. Because what I'm doing is when I'm doing that, I'm starting to think, I'm starting to align my will, my desires, my emotions, my thoughts. I'm lining those up with what God's are. That's what prayer does. Prayer is not given to us to manipulate the mind of God, to twist his arm, to give us the hummer, the, the wealth. It's to align me up, my desires, with God. So that what God wants is the same thing I want. And if God doesn't want it, I don't want it. That's, that's prayer. That's what it means to pray. And I find when I pray like that, it's just... You know, nothing, it doesn't bother you. I mean, you are content or satisfied or whatever the word is that I need. Yeah, whatever I was praying about and so concerned about when I finished praying, I'm fine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think Christ prayed to the Father with all night on, you know? He's asking the Father to do this or do that. What's he doing? It's fellowship. It's... Mm -hmm. It's communion with the Father. That's what prayer is. It's talking to God like you would talk to a friend and wanting to be on his page. Wanting, If I love the Lord, I'm going to want to do those things that make him happy. What makes him happy? That's what I want to do. And these jokers that get on TV and say, you know, God wants you to be a millionaire and drive a Hummer and have rings on every finger and all that stuff. That those are those are people that are going to stand in Matthew 17, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he's going to say, I have no idea who you guys are. Because that's not what Christianity is all about. It's not what you get. But I thank God for my 96. You think? When I get it, when I get in my Mercury Grand Marquis, I thank God that I have it to this day. I thank the Lord that I can drive that. That he's allowed me to have that. And when I get my little Ford Ranger, 
I'm thankful that I have that, that it's in good pair, that I, you know, it runs nice and I'm thankful for that. And when I get it washed and waxed, it's not because I want to indulge myself because, you know, God's given me this and I want to I want to take care of what he's given me. You know, he's given me a house. Why do I keep the yard mowed and the house repaired? Because, you know, he's granted that to me. And I want to, you know, I want to, you know, if somebody gives you a very precious gift, you want to take care of it. Well, God's given us everything. We don't worship this stuff, but we are appreciative. And prayer is aligning our will with God. And what are they doing in Acts here? They're aligning their thinking, their, 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 everything. They're lining it up with what God wants. And what happens in this, during this time of prayer, is what happens? What does the Holy Spirit do to Peter? Well, Acts 15. Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. There's about 120. And said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he is numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. And then it tells you what happened to Judas. Now, when this man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle. All of his entrails gushed out, and it became known to all those who were dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, no, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Alright, so what, what's, what's the upshot of this whole thing? Well, how many disciples did you have at this point? Eleven. What did Christ say they would be presiding over in the kingdom earlier on in the Gospels? What's the problem with that picture? You're one short, right? Wait a minute. There should be 12 of us. Because there's 12 tribes. One of us is over each tribe. There's only 11 of us. We're missing somebody. We're missing one. So what do you need to do? You need to replace the fallen one. Now... In doing that, Peter quotes some verses out of Psalms. They're written on a board here, three disparate verses. All right. Now, this is something I'm going to talk about this so that so that you're aware of how this of some issues here. One of the things you got to be careful with is stringing verses together. And why is it that you need to be careful of that? Yeah, and because you're not who? You're not the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is you're not allowed as a human being without the leading of the Holy Spirit, you're not allowed to just string your verses together. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there are principles that came out of the life of David, out of his writings that applied to whom? Judas, right? Now, were these verses originally intended to talk about Judas? No, they weren't. Who are they talking about? The primary primary application is David's enemies. David and David's enemies. All right. That's what David was right. You know, David's not saying, I'm going to write about Judas here. He had no idea who Judas was. In fact, David didn't even know the Messiah was going to show up personally. 
He had no idea, you know, and, and like Christ did and, and live a life and die. He had no idea of that. So he's certainly not writing that. In, in Psalm 22, you know, the great messianic psalm where they lift him up and his bones are out of joint. And, you know, I said, well, David, you know, he's prophesying of the crucifixion. Well, David didn't know that. David was writing about himself. He was writing a visual imagery, poetry of himself. But behind that, what was pictured? An event later on. The Holy Spirit knew that. David didn't. So when David wrote these verses, he wasn't primarily talking about Judas, a, a, a betrayer. But yet, the principles behind these apply, right? The first one here talks of the first one here, the Psalm 41.9. That's talking about David who's saying, someone who was close to me, someone who, who was right with me, betrayed me. It's a psalm of betrayal. What happened to Christ? He was betrayed. By whom? By, one by someone close to him. Yes, now, by the way, did that take Christ by surprise? No. <laughs> he knew. Yeah. Do you think the reason why it's brought up in reference to the Old Testament, stronger emphasis on this, this portion, now, a lot of times in the New Testament, Paul or whoever's writing will quote something from the Old Testament to put stronger emphasis on maybe that first mention principle? Or it could be that. Um, also, the Old Testament really is a picture book, right? And um, it shows continuity between the two testaments. You know, there's continuity there. Um, but however, you know, and I, I think one of the one of the things to think about here, if it were not for the Holy Spirit quoting this here, would we associate Psalm forty one nine with Judas necessarily? No. But Psalm forty one nine is a picture of someone, a close friend who betrayed someone, and what is what, you, what is Judas? Well, he was a close friend who betrayed Christ. I wouldn't associate a name with it. No. It the principle is. The principle is. And, and, and there are, and the Holy Spirit's allowed to do that. See, the Holy Spirit's allowed to take passages out of the Old Testament that you just say, you know, I, I would never have associated that with this. But since the Holy Spirit wrote the book, he's allowed to do what he wants. I have to be careful when I go do that because I'm not the Holy Spirit. I have to be much more rigid in my interpretation. Um, and then it talks about him falling down. Well, what happened there? I thought Judas hanged himself. Well, he did. And most likely what happened is he hanged himself. The rope broke or the branch broke. He fell down into the valley and he burst open. Both of those can be true. It's not like one is true or the other. Both can be true. Well, whatever he hung with, Broke. You know. Um, and by the way, just so you know, it, I, I'm a little macabre. You know, I got a macabre side of me. But um, there, there, there are there are records in the ancient West of people who are hung that split open. That'd be pretty gross. You know, but if you're an extremely overweight person and they drop you six feet and they've even had people whose heads were pulled off, actually, um, by hanging. You know, so, I mean, this is not uncommon. It could have happened here. And he 
And, and of course, the priests couldn't take the blood money back, right? They couldn't put it back in the treasury because it was the price of blood. It's interesting. Here, here they are. They're, 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 they're too, so picky, they won't take the 30 pieces of silver and put them back in the temple treasury because they don't want to violate some itty-bitty rule, but they just crucified their own Messiah. Talk about, talk about missing the point, you know. So what did they do with the money? Well, they bought this field, a potter's field, and in those days, what was the potter's field? Right. Yeah. Throwing a question there too. Could it be that the Pharisees looked at Jesus the way they did? Because, well, would they have accepted him if he came with the message of he was there for an earthly kingdom? And the only reason they they turned him away was because he came up with this fanatical idea about this future heavenly kingdom. Which, uh, yeah. We're never going to get anywhere in, in Acts. But, but that's a good question. The question you hit is, what was the initial message that John the Baptist and Christ preached? All right, what does it mean by that? What did they mean by that? Very close. What kingdom are they talking about? Jesus is starting his ministry. But what kingdom were they talking about? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What kingdom are they talking about? Which kingdom? The one that they were promised, the earthly kingdom. Absolutely. They still do. And I still do. But they don't accept him because he's talking about a future coming kingdom rather than... What, yeah, because what was the requirement for the earthly kingdom? First of all, let's ask a question. What, in, what, what kingdom was, was John the Baptist and Christ... In the first part of his ministry, what kingdom was he offering? Which kingdom was it? The earthly or the spiritual? The earthly. The earthly kingdom. Why do you think John the Baptist was so confused? He said, wait a minute. The, the thing to understand is when Christ showed up, when John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom he was talking about is the kingdom, the earthly, physical, literal kingdom that God promised Israel in the Old Testament. So John didn't know any better either. He didn't know any better. Which was Christ himself on earth? Yes. The Messiah, the Messiah of God coming and reigning. Okay. Okay. In Christ, when he first began preaching, what did he preach? The same message, right? The same message. Was the message to Israel to offer the kingdom a bona fide, legitimate offer? Yes, it was. It was a bona fide offer. And how did they get it? How would they have received that physical, literal kingdom? They would have had to believe what? 
that he was the Messiah. And part of that belief is what? Repent of your sins. Now, did some people do that? Sure. A lot of, you know, there are a bunch of them did. Who didn't? None of the leaders did. The bulk of Israel rejected the Messiah. In fact, at this point, how many people believed? 120. <laughs> All right. That's right. But the thing to understand is when Christ showed up, the offer to Israel was a bona fide, legitimate offer of the physical, literal kingdom. Had they accepted him as their Messiah, they would have had the kingdom. What's that mean? What kingdom? The physical, literal kingdom. He would have destroyed the Romans and they would have had the, gold, the, the kingdom promise. Had they believed. Now, since God's omniscient... They wouldn't have needed been a church for anything. That's right. What about the prophecy in Isaiah that was said that Christ himself was far different? Absolutely. Yep, I'm glad you asked that because when you go to Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11, you get your answer. Because they reject you got to be schizo on this. You got to be, because if not, you're going to go nuts. I know that doesn't make sense. You got to be schizo if you're going to go nuts. But you got to be schizo on this, you go nuts. The offer of the kingdom was a bona fide offer. Had Israel accepted Christ on his terms, repented their sins, turned to him, accept him as their Messiah, they would have had the kingdom. But that was not the plan of God. That was not the plan of God. Yes. Now, did God make them reject Christ? Yes. Did God force them to reject him? Does God force anyone to reject him? No. No, he does not. After they harden theirs. I'm telling you, you got to be schizo on this. I'm telling you. You're driving me schizo. you got to be schizo. This isn't a bamboozle, yeah, you got you you you, you got you got to be the the offer the king. Here's a question: When when God offers salvation to people, if you stand up, you you preach a sermon, you go down to a little church, you preach a sermon, you got a hundred people in the church, fifty are saved, fifty are lost, and you say, anyone who accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their sins are forgiven, they're going to heaven. Is, is that a valid, bona fide offer of salvation to those 50 unbelievers? To the 50 unbelievers? Is that a valid, bona fide offer? Yes. Yes. Yes, that's a valid, bona fide offer. Who's going to repent? The believers. The elect is. All right. But the point is, the point is, and this, you got to understand this. In the scripture, in the scripture, it makes it very clear, all right, that God's offer of salvation is a bona fide offer. Whosoever will may come is a bona fide, valid offer. But unless God does a work, you ain't going to come because your own inclination of your heart is to reject. The same thing with Israel. The offer of the kingdom was a valid, bona fide, legitimate offer. 
But because of their hardness of their heart, they rejected their Messiah. God didn't make them reject him. God didn't force them to do that. They did that of their own choice. God just didn't interfere to override the choices. I know that doesn't set. You see where, where, that, where that goes. The offer was a bona fide offer. But God knew omnisciently. And it was part of the decree that they would reject because he did nothing to interfere with their rejection. And the point is this, if God does not interfere with our rejection, we are all going to reject him. That's, that's the key. That, that's, that's taught clearly in the scripture. Left to yourself. Romans chapter 3, they're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There's none that does good, no, not one. They, you don't even want to do good. The pagan does not want to love God. They do not want anything to do with him. God has to override the darkness of their heart in order to bring salvation to them. They're not going to just decide one day to be a Christian because it's better than being a Buddhist or a Muslim. And the offer that, that Christ made to Israel, the offer that was there on the table was, if you take Christ as your Messiah, what do you get? The kingdom. Now, they rejected him, right? So now you have the church, which, by the way, was not an afterthought. It was part of the plan of God. It was all part of his eternal decree. What's the eternal decree of God? His universal plan. All right. God decreed that this would happen. All right. What's going to happen in the future? What, what's the purpose of the tribulation? To bring Israel, to back them into the corner where the only thing they can do is recognize that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. And once they do that, what happens? Boom, you get the kingdom. Oh, get the kingdom, not the end? Zechariah 13 and 14. When Christ comes again, they're going to look up in him whom they have pierced. They're going to mourn as one mourns for an only son. And they're going to repent. And one third of Israel is going to be saved. And they're going to see the Messiah. And once they accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as a nation, mm -hmm. the kingdom will come. The offer was bona fide. It was taken off the table temporarily. That's Romans 11. But someday it's going to go back on the table. And the next time they will believe. But the offer was a bona fide offer. So it was impossible for Israel to accept Christ from the year 70 until the year 1947 because they didn't exist as a nation. Jews could, individuals, they would be part of the church, the universal body of Christ, but as a nation, no. Well, okay, so it would have been impossible for Christ to come back between 70 and 1947. Looking back, yeah, but... But you got to understand, when God wants to move things, it doesn't take him really long to line things up. I mean, it doesn't take that much to line it up. I mean, isn't that the key? The key, like, the to, key indicator of perhaps we're in the end times is the establishment, the establishment of, Israel. of Israel as a nation. And of course, it could, it, could, it could lose its status as a nation. But, and it'll come back at some point. Yeah. 
but I mean, currently, it's yeah. that's what makes it more, more possible for Christ to come. And why do you think the Arabs hate them? Well, the Arabs are energized by Satan who wants to destroy the nation of Israel, God's people. That's why they're so irrational in their hatred. We look at that and we shake our heads and think of them all as nut jobs, but they're energized by Satan who hates God. And that's that's why you see that over there. Yeah, yeah, it's satanically motivated and energized. But the, but the whole point there, I don't know how we got onto that, but but the whole point is that God's offer, God's offer to Israel was a bona fide, legitimate offer. Okay, had they believed, they would have had the kingdom. It would have been theirs. All right. And and the verses that are used here are, are are pulled from various psalms to give a composite picture. You've got the fact of a friend betraying him. You got one his dwelling place be desolate and no one live in it. Another one said, "Let him, someone else take his office." Now the primary understanding of all those verses in the Old Testament is not in reference to Judas, but they're illustrating the purpose. Wait a minute, we lost one of our 12. There's 12 tribes where there's somebody else that's got to take the spot. Who takes his spot? They're missing somebody. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of the John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So, who did they choose? Well, someone who had been with them, which means that Christ had a lot more disciples following him than the 12 we think of. We know there's at least 70, right? Because he sent them out two by two, the 70. So there are, there are others that, that followed Christ. Um, and in fact, who did Christ choose the 12 out of? Well, Matthew chapter 10 he went up on the mountain all night. He came down the next day, and of the people, of his disciples that were following him, he chose twelve of the seventy or hundred or whatever. He chose twelve of them to be the close ones, but there were more that were following him. And they proposed two: Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, "You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which of these two you have chosen." to take part in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. He went to hell. Cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they cast lots. Matthias was chosen. Now, immediately all the gamblers say, Hallelujah, you know, you roll those dice. Yeah, you know. Well, now, wait a minute, okay? Let's understand. How did God reveal his will? In the, by the way, is this Old Testament or New Testament? It's old. How did God reveal his will in the Old Testament? Many times. By majority, but how else? The lots. And what is the casting of lots? Remember the Urim and the Thummim? The two stones in the Old Testament? One was white, one was black. Okay? The, the, way, the way they're... Think of Achan. How, how did God... How did Achan... How was Achan chosen? They cast lots, right? So you go through and you pick it out and pull out, a red, you know, the black marble. Oh, that's this family. Put them all back in a bag and, you know, that's how they chose. That's how they, they did it. And by the way, in, Psalm, in Proverbs it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but the Lord disposes the whole matter. 
This was a bona fide, valid, legitimate way in the Old Testament because they did not have the Holy Spirit. They did not have the leading inner voice of the Holy Spirit. This is how they chose. And by the way, who is behind the choosing? The Holy Spirit. By the way, this is not this is not a proof for gambling. Don't even go here to deal with the gambling issue. That's not what this is talking about. All right. This is talking about how do I know the will of God? Well, the valid way under the priesthood is you would go and you would pull out the the priest would get the urim and the thummim, which was black or white or whatever, and that's how God's will was known by what color you pulled out. You would pray, you would ask God to show you his will, you'd reach in a bag and pull it out, and there's the answer. Okay? And that's how they chose Matthias. Were both of these guys um, valid contestants for this? Yeah. 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 So... God's not a guy that intentionally chose the other guys because he wanted to the other guys around. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> God, ultimately God chose Matthias. Yeah. All right. But 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 it's not that Barabbas was a bad guy or anything like that. God chose, there can only be one, God chose Matthias. And a lot fell on him, and he was the one that was numbered with the twelve. Was that God's will? Sure it was. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.